the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. You're very welcome back to the hard shoulder. Kieran Cudahy with you until seven o'clock this evening. And delighted to say I am joined in studio now by Nolene Blackwell, CEO of the Rape Crisis Centre. Uh, my guest this week for the Thursday interview. Nolene, how are you? Hello, Kieran. Glad um, to be here. Hey, listen, we're glad glad to have you here. I suppose we always speak to you in that context with the the professional cap on. Yeah. Um. And, and listen, we will talk about the professional career in a moment. This is more about you, um, and and your own journey. I suppose I, I find myself kind of asking people a lot in this lot lately how they found the last eighteen nineteen months. Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, personally, I'm very grateful. Uh, I kept my health. Um, I kept my job. I was able to to manage. I had space. I was able to walk. These are the kind of things that become like their basics that become really, really important. And I'm so conscious that I, while people I knew died at the same time, maybe their time had come. I didn't. I didn't come across um, that kind of you know, COVID as such was kind to me, and it wasn't to others. And I'm personally very grateful for it. I mean in terms of work and I know it's not all about work but yeah. at the same time we were so conscious of the level of sort of I don't know lack of hope or battering that some people took through anxiety and depression and either being too close to people or too isolated from people without their normal supports that you know I I got lucky and uh, and I'm grateful for that uh, and I, again I don't want to get stuck too much into work as well but unconscious as well, in terms of the work the Rape Crisis Centre do. I remember speaking to a solicitor early on in the lockdown, in lockdown one, um, yeah. who, who would do work with the HSE and protection orders. And, and he painted a really grim picture of what was going on yeah. out there in some households. Yeah. And, and even when abuse wasn't happening, there was the fear of abuse for an awful lot of them. And there was that. There was a, a sense in which people blamed COVID for their frustrations and therefore their abuse or their violence uh, and that was totally like wrong uh, and there was a sense in which people knew that they didn't have people to go to they didn't have the safe family house or down the way you know or whatever and I suppose one of the things that was comfort comforting in in general in theory even if it didn't work for everyone was when actually Tusla, uh, who is our kind of main funder in, in health services area, and the guards and the Department of Justice all prioritised uh, safety and said, don't worry about two kilometre restrictions or five kilometre restrictions. If you're, if you're at risk and you need to run, go. There won't be any consequences for it. And later when people might be sort of slow to report a, a rape that happened at a party that wasn't permitted under the regulations... The, the guards also came out and said things like, uh, if, it, if you're abused, it doesn't matter where you were abused. Yeah. And if you're breaking a regulation, somebody else was doing something much worse. Yeah, there are, there are degrees of wrongdoing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, uh, but it's kind of at the same time, people tend to blame themselves for all of these things. Mm. So just at that level, while, while, and while all of that was hard and very hard on my teams and the people I was working with in the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. I think we all felt 
in some ways, we were grateful for the chance to keep going. We were there for people because sometimes the most frustrating thing is to be able to do nothing. We mightn't, we might have had to do things differently, maybe not perfectly all the way, but we were able to help and continue our work. And that's, that's huge. And, and that work, that work you've done with the Rape Crisis Centre and, and FLAC Free Legal Aid before that, these are, you know, high profile positions you found yourself in. So to a degree, you haven't had a a, a, a typical kind of career, if we no, call it that. But, no. you know, not, not many people would have had the same career yeah, yeah. as you, which is why I'm interested to talk about your background, because to a degree, if somebody has an atypical career path, they're either an atypical person or maybe they've had some experience or something has informed yeah. them and the decisions they make. You're a, a Tipperary woman born yeah, and bred. That's right. Exactly. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah, you're all right. No, I won't hold that against you. You weren't big into GEA, though. You weren't. Oh, God, no. Uh, No, but, um, you know, it is really interesting. I'm not suggesting that's what makes you a typical But but speaking (laughs) speaking, uh, as a Kilkenny man, um, I just think it is kind of extraordinary that I was quite old. Now, I don't know, maybe 9, 10, maybe 12, 13, before I realised there were two forms of GAA games. You know, like it was hurling, hurling, hurling. Yes. Um, and there was a, sm- a period then, and Tipperary has now developed a good football day. But like, it was Declan Brown, was just this kind of amazing person who came out of nowhere yes. uh, playing football in Tipperary. But, so we knew all about it. But I have to say, there's nobody would ever accuse me of being sporty at all myself. Uh, I didn't like team games. I, I was no good Good if if a, if a ball had to connect with a bat, any sort of a bat in any sort of a way, I could not see that connection coming, and it was more likely to hit me in the head than anything else. So, no sport is is if you ask me a sport that's best watched. All right. So, did you excel academically then? I know. No, I'm. I mean, I think in some ways the reason I was able to move around so much is that I'm. I'm not excellent but I'm kind of average and I'm interested and I'm curious in things so uh, so school yeah so school I did all right in school I did well I was a dutiful student I didn't misbehave you know any of that sort of stuff I was dutiful I did my homework for the most part but I did not know until I went to university that you could actually get a kick out of being educated. That's not to say that I didn't have good teachers who taught me some really interesting things. You know, I remember some of the things that I was taught, normally not on the curriculum, but teachers like who would teach you a little bit maybe outside the curriculum or to put it in context, those kind of things. But the school curriculum definitely doesn't suit everyone. And so for anyone who might be listening, who's kind of going through it, there is more to education than that. Although now I notice that youngsters seem to love going to school, which is, if you ask me, a very foreign concept to me. It, you, you, your dad was a creamery manager yeah. and your mum was a teacher. From yeah, a, a long, primary school teacher. A, a kind yeah. of a, a, a family of teachers. That's exactly right. I yeah. mean... One or the other was surely on the agenda for you oh, then. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely, yeah. So you, I was going you, you to be a primary to be a school teacher, teacher. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, my dad would have loved, I'm the eldest of three girls, and he would have loved all of us or any of us to be a creamery manager, which he thought was the best job in the world. He loved it as a job. Um, and that's why like, he'd kind of want us to do maths and things like that. So we all failed him. But I was certainly going to become uh, a primary school teacher until my leaving search year. And then by sheer chance, someone else said they were doing law. And now that I think about it, I think I might have had a doubt about my sewing capacity or my singing capacity. And you had to do these tests to be a primary school teacher in those days to be able to sing 
and so and I couldn't really do either and I, I but I defy anyone to say I can't sing now I, yeah I, but yeah. but, uh, but law must have, it must have been more than just someone mentioned no, it because I'm sure o- other people must have mentioned other courses sheer but, chance but why did law jump into your mind sheer though? chance it was absolutely sheer chance during my Christmas holidays and that's why when people ask me what are my plans or how did I get to where I am right now I never know I never know how I get there how I've been guided by some part of the universe or uh, as I say one of my favourite poems is called Flying Crooked which is about this moth that kind of lurches and the way they put it in the poem uh, Robert Graves' poem uh, lurches from here to there by grace and God and hope and hopelessness and then and then uh, Graves goes on to say even the acrobatic swift has not his flying crooked gift so I do I am of the view that people who make plans somebody's laughing at them up above because it was sheer chance. I put it down on the CAO form and at the time it took, you know, it took very little actually to get into law back in my day. You know, um, you did not have to have massive points or the rest of it. I didn't have massive points, uh, but I had enough points to get in. And when I got there, I absolutely loved it as a course. Why? It was, it just spoke, it just spoke to me. And I don't know because I had friends in college who did not like it, who either didn't finish it, didn't make it, or who who endured it in order to get to the next stage. I think I love, I think I like um, understanding the rules. I'm not always saying I'm a perfect be- you know, behave with all the rules. But I like to know what they are. I like to know what the system is. And and law gave me all of that. And, you know, it gave me then again some great teachers like John Kelly, who wrote the book on the Irish Constitution, mm. taught us Roman law, mostly in Latin, which I was hopeless at in school as well. <laughs> but um, but it didn't matter because he was just such an interesting person about Roman time. So you got history, you got an understanding of the world and how it operates, who has power, how power happens. I think I may have been political enough from a young age. And... It spoke to that, and but I I loved um, property, for instance, and property law, which everyone says you know so tedious and the rest. Of it. I think I like detail, but I like understanding how things operate. And law gave me that, where you know there was no question of doing science or anything like that. But I could have done teaching. I think I might have been grand as a teacher as well. But law was a wonderful education for me. If you're just tuning into the hard shoulder, Nolene Blackwell, uh, the CEO of the Rape Crisis Centre, is my guest this week for the Thursday interview. Is there something that you can pinpoint then in 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 your background, in your family life, in terms of your education that pushed you in the direction? And I appreciate, as you said, you're 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 that moth flying uh, over and back, hither and thither. Um, that pushed you in the direction of of human rights and equality and and the work that we know you for. Yeah. So again, I I think maybe I've never grown up. Uh, you know the way kids say that's not fair when they're two and three and yes. the rest of it. I think I've kind of gone along all my life saying that's not fair. Um, and there have you know like I suppose even when I was working down to Prairie as a young solicitor and having a great time, not slightly even interested in human rights. I was. I mean, I I often think I was very glad to be part of setting up the Citizens Information Centre in Tipperary Town, which, you know, I feel there is, people are entitled to information that, you know, they shouldn't be 
dependent on somebody telling them they'll get them their social welfare payment. Either they're entitled to it or they're not. And if they're entitled to it, nobody should be denying them. So there's something about things being fair that I like about it. But I was lucky too. Do you think the law was fair? Uh, no, but I, I like to know where it's unfair as well, because okay. once you know where it's unfair, then you can do something about it. It's the people who tell you you can't do anything. And, but, and I suppose I was growing up as well in a time where women and the rights of women as women were becoming quite a thing when I was, you know, I mean, just talking to kind of people even 10 years before the rest of it, maybe it was more nationalism or something like for For us, for me and my friends, an awful lot of it was around feminism, around women's rights, women's liberation was, you know, what it was called. There was a recognition that things were not fair for women uh, in those times. And I think maybe that was useful for me or maybe I just latched on to things that I liked. But that certainly struck me as an area where, but I didn't find that human rights framework until quite a bit later. I was, I had set up my own practice in Dublin in my 30s and I, um, by chance, went into a sale of work uh, where Amnesty International was doing a fundraiser in the mansion house, went in, meant to just pay my yearly subscription so they could get on with their work. And thanks to people who are now great friends of mine in that organisation, they pulled me in bit by bit. And that's where I learned about the international universal framework of human rights. And and once you understand that and understand that human rights and equality are a way of looking at the world, then it made it made heaps of sense to me. I want to just pick up on something you said there about, you know, maybe that the generation before you, for them, the national national identity and uh, what was the, the, the big cultural force, I suppose, yeah. that they kind of coalesced around. And by the time you got uh, came of age, that to a degree maybe had been settled or, or not settled, yeah, well, but certainly was, yeah. it had fallen down maybe the priority list. Yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. and other issues like gender equality and things had taken over. I mean, were they or how febrile was the atmosphere around those issues at that time? Yeah, well, of course, nationalism was a big issue because the troubles had started yeah. in Northern Ireland. But again, not not personally for me in some ways that that was settled. How... How how big an issue was it? Do you think the, sorry sorry to yeah. interrupt you, but I'm just curious because you you would have lived through all of this. Maybe did the start of the troubles cause the issue of national identity to fall down the priority list here? Because it it, be, it it arguably it made it a more contentious issue. You yeah. know what I mean? Now that yeah. there was bombs and bullets attached yeah. to the debate. It, maybe it was harder to have the debate. It was easier, yeah. certainly, say, where you're from in the world and where I'm from in Kilkenny. It was easier to ignore it, maybe. Yeah, maybe it was. And there was certainly, my uh, mother's father lived with us. Uh, he, was, he was a wonderful man um, from the old IRA. And when the trouble started, he was very clear that that what was happening up there was not him, you know, mm. so that the IRA was, as it was developing, I'm not saying it was right around, but just for him, it was a whole yeah. new thing. So the discussion definitely closed down. You're quite right. There was there was a level at which certainly around Tipperary, I think it would have been a much smaller group of people or it would have looked like more trouble. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted yeah. you because I was asking yeah. about how, I suppose, how, how febrile the atmosphere, I think is how I, uh, is how I asked the question, yeah. it was around gender equality at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so we we didn't call it gender equality at the time because there, it really was about women trying to find their place. Yeah. Um. So there was, I mean, 
to, to my mind, it was just becoming inevitable that this was going to happen along the way. And it's kind of one of the things that I think back, you're so cocky when you're young. You just know that if you do this amount of work, everything will be fine into the future. We kind of thought if we did, and I wasn't, now I wasn't engaged. I was having far too good a time now. I was in my 20s. I was working down to prayers, enjoying myself enormously. I wasn't putting a whole heap of work into this. Uh, but, but I mean, I was fairly satisfied that, that women were going to get their rightful place in, in our society and that it would all happen. And so there was, there was interesting things happening that even now, Last, uh, just before uh, COVID struck, we had in the Rape Crisis Centre, we had our 40th anniversary. And because all the people who had founded Dublin Rape Crisis Centre had been so young at the time, loads of them were there. Evelyn mm. Conlon was there, Anne O'Donnell was there. And, uh, you know, so we had Barbara Egan, we had Olive Braden coming, who was a little bit later. We had all of these great people who were still kind of household names and who'd been involved so much in the start of it. They were doing the Reclaim the Night marches. They were saying, we want to wear what we want, we want to walk where we want without, you know, being in danger. Um, the, the contraception train was going up to Belfast and coming down again. There were all of these kind of manifestations happening. The, the priests in Tipperary had given up on telling um, young women that they couldn't wear slacks, which was where we kind of started off. Yes. Um, um, people were dressing in more individual ways, Older women as well, my mother's generation were more conscious that they were in their own right people as well, not just, uh, you know, uh, people who were now kind of past their useful time because they'd stopped bearing children or whatever. So there was there was a lot of that. And, and so I think it was and that was uh, uh, we were watching uh, England, we were watching North America. All of that was happening. There was an equality movement going on. But then that pulled back, you know, over time as well. That kind of pushed away and people went, whoa, hold on, women, you're just going too far here along the way. So it, so when we looked at the back and on the 40 years, you had these waves of times where women mm. really were coming to the front and then times when they were going back into their box again, where they were, as that case in the 1970s in a Dublin court said, uh, a, a woman, a wife is a chattel, uh, just like a cow or a thoroughbred horse. That's like 50 years ago still, less than 50 years ago. So we had we had a distance to go. We uh, have. Uh, how do you assess w- where we are today and the state of play today in yeah, this country? Yeah, I, I actually am uh, an, an optimist. I'm, mm. I'm always hopeful about things. I think that we're better than we were. I think even in terms of my own work right now in the whole area of sexual violence and rape and abuse, even five years ago, it was harder to talk about those things in general conversation than it is now. Whereas now there's a whole generation of people or young people who are really pressing to have these things, to have discussions around this normalised, which is why like, we're going to get into that area of the normalisation, the discussions around this, trying to find out what's wrong with what we're saying and seeing can, can we put it another way that everyone accepts that there's... So there's a lot of work to be done there, but you can see... The seeds are there that can start work. Nolene, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've kind of feel in some ways in terms of the professional work, we only scratched the surface, but uh, it's been a pleasure and thanks a million for coming in. Thank you, Kieran.